Darkcast Network, indie pods with a dark side. October 8th, 1759. After being nationally recognized for a landmark piece of poetry, literary scholar and ahead of his time classic liberal Beelby Porteous opened a fresh copy of a Cambridge University printing. Inside was his highly acclaimed work that focused on the tyrannical rule of sovereigns, a critique of their power, their quest for glory, and the blood-soaked legacies they left in their wakes. He cracked open the crisp hardback cover and skimmed through his commentary on power entitled Death, a Poetical Essay. He slowly reread the words he submitted to the literary contest only months earlier and savored a uniquely powerful passage he inked for contemplation by the masses. Quote, To sate the lust of power, more horrid still, the foul stain and scandal of our nature became its boast. One murder made a villain, millions a hero. Princes were privileged to kill, and numbers sanctified the crime. Ah, why will kings forget that they were men, men that they are brethren? Why delight in these human sacrifices? Why burst the ties of nature that should knit their souls together in one soft bond of amity and love? Yet still they breathe destruction, still go on inhumanely, ingenious to find only new pains for life, new terrors for the grave. Artificers of death, still monarchs dream of universal empire, growing up from universal ruin. End quote. Now fast forward to 1947. This is where Washington Post journalist Leonard Lyons is writing a piece about Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin. In his journal, he details how one of the most notable quotes ever attributed to the tyrant came into being. Lyons began writing about how, in a meeting of high-ranking Soviet officials concerning the developing famine in Ukraine, later remembered as the Holodomor, one of the attendees attempted to make a plea on behalf of the starving peasants. He began to rattle off the plight of the Kulaks and outlined the hundreds of thousands of deaths that had occurred over the last several months alone. Looking apathetic and increasingly bored with the appeals to his mercy, the official was rudely interrupted mid-sentence by Stalin. And with the stroke of his mustache, he manifested the crux of Porteus's aforementioned poem by dismissing his underling's concerns by insisting that, quote, Dear comrade, if one man dies of hunger, that is a grave tragedy. But if millions die, well, that's just a statistic. Welcome to Smoke-Filled Rooms, a political true crime podcast exploring history's most infamous governments, parties, leaders, policies, and discontents. Hosted by Gregory Zane. Hello everyone, and welcome back to Smoke-Filled Rooms a Dark Cast Network show dedicated to exposing political crimes from across the historical and ideological spectrum. And today's episode is going to be somewhat conceptual in nature. But 
we will also weave in many real-life examples of grave injustice and suffering that inevitably accompany our topic. We usually take a look at historical events and get down into the gritty details while we situate them into a, a larger historical understanding. But today, I'm going to put on my lecturer's cap and hopefully convince you that our mainstream terminology for the highest levels of political crime is incomplete. I'm going to speak about an important and all but ignored topic that is notably absent from mainstream political discourse and for fairly obvious reasons as you'll come to learn. For I do believe that the widespread adoption of this qualitative tool would greatly undercut the conceptual scaffolding that currently exists within our popular consciousness. It would additionally call into question nearly everything that governments say, do, strive for, and most importantly, how they imprint history onto us. Another video posted online shows ISIS fighters parading hundreds of prisoners before a crowd. The captured men, now in civilian clothes, said to be members of the Iraqi police. But is it true that you said Hitler didn't kill enough Jews during the war? <laughs> Why do you ask me about Hitler? The Hitler's problem is now past tense. Now we are looking forward for the future generations and the future plan. We are no longer going back. A combination of radical agricultural policies, social pressure, economic mismanagement, and natural... It was at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul that Jamal Khashoggi met his brutal end. He'd been lured there to discuss paperwork for his... thousand people fled here, seeking sanctuary inside. But Hutu militias stormed the building and murdered nearly all of them. It's now a mass grave and a memorial. There are 45,000 people interred beneath the church. Remains of those killed in 1994 are still... There are a lot of sides in this world. And no, I don't mean sides as in reference to a Rubik's Cube or the belligerence in a given conflict. This side versus that side, etc. No, no, no. I'm specifically referring to sides in the literal sense of a suffix within the English language. Sides, as in C-I-D-E-S. The word that is rooted in Latin and denotes a person, persons, or substance that kills. The operative word here being kills. Many of the words to which side is attached, you are likely to be familiar with. So we'll start from the top as it were. Homicide is the killing of one human being by another. In this instance, homa denotes the Latin word man. So this word literally means man-killing and is uncontroversially used every night on your corporate news coverage. The bleeding lead, as it were. You are also likely familiar with the term infanticide. This is a seriously sinister deed of a legal adult who intentionally kills a child that's roughly under the age of three. This is exemplified by an absolute monster of a person like the uniquely depraved and infamous baby farmer Amelia Dyer from the 19th century. Go down that rabbit hole if you want to be thoroughly disgusted. Next on our list we have ethnocide. This is a term that was originally supposed to be interchangeable with genocide which we'll get on to next, 
but was applied differently starting in the 1970s. The American Bar Association describes ethnocide as the deliberate acts of destroying the cultural framework of a people, but not of the actual people themselves. This is most readily seen and understood within the context of the native populations of North America, who were subjected to the residential school system. With the partnership of church and state, there was a deliberate program to destroy native culture and have them assimilate to Western European ideals of education, government, religion, etc. In essence, killing their ethnocultural backgrounds. Escalating up the chain of human misery and depravity, we arrive at one that the Nazis popularized with their especially heinous and industrialized form of mass murder. Of course, I'm speaking of genocide. In these instances, the targets for death are dramatically increased from individuals to an entire group, race, or nation with the specific goal of ultimately eradicating said group. Killing their genealogy or genetic grouping, as it were, for the root word explanation. Genocides have been seen across the world from Cambodia in the 1970s, where 2 million were killed, the Ottoman Empire's genocide against the Armenians during World War I, where at least 1 million were killed, and even in contemporary times, we have the Rohingya genocide in Myanmar and the Darfur genocide in Sudan, where respectively 13,000 and a quarter million have been killed. As grotesque and vile as all these various sides are, they can all essentially be umbrellaed under a bigger, and to me, more descriptive term. One that accurately accounts for all the aforementioned examples of atrocities and wanton acts of violence, and was coined by groundbreaking political scientist Rudolf J. Rummel in the mid-1980s. The side that we are concerned with in this episode is democide. It is a term that few outside of political science or anarchist circles are likely to have heard, but to me, has immense potential for future use if understood and properly conceptualized. So let's start from scratch and begin by breaking down the word and properly defining it. The word democide can be broken into two parts. The first is demo or demos, which derived from its Greek and Latin origins means, quote, the ordinary citizens of an ancient Greek city-state, or the common populace of a state or district, end quote. In other words, the citizenry or people inhabiting a politically demarcated area. And this is coupled with the aforementioned side, C-I-D-E, which I'm sure you've gathered by this point is again a reference to killing or being killed. So coupled together, democide denotes the action of a government in killing its own subjects. Now this is a term that's not even recognized in Apple or Google spell checks despite it existing since 1986. Not because it's illegitimate, but because it's so widely underappreciated and overlooked as a political tool. And you'll soon be surprised at how routinely it is left unobserved despite its accuracy and distinct usefulness. Especially when this fact is juxtaposed against common narratives. But I digress we have to get back to our definitions. Democide covers a large swath of government-induced deaths and includes fatalities from forced labor and concentration camps, extrajudicial killings of regime opponents, mass death pertaining to acts of criminal neglect or rigid policy implementation, killings resulting from civil wars on the part of either belligerent because, well, let's face it, 
both sides are killing their own countrymen, and any murder carried out under the auspice of a government official. In Professor Rummel's landmark work entitled How Many Did Communist Regimes Murder?, he goes on to clarify the terminology for us. Quote, Democide means for governments what murder means for an individual. It is the premeditated killing of a person in cold blood or of causing the death of a person through reckless and wanton disregard for their life. Thus, a government incarcerating people in prison under such deadly conditions that they die in a few years is murder by the state and is akin to parents letting a child die from malnutrition and exposure, which would rightly be considered murder. So would government forced labor that kills a person within months or a couple years be murder. So would government-created famines that are then ignored or knowingly aggravated by government action be murder of those who starve to death. And obviously, extrajudicial executions, death by torture, government massacres, and all genocidal killings would be murder as well. However, judicial executions for crimes that internationally would be considered capital offenses, such as for murder or treason, as long as it is clear that these are not fabricated for the extent purpose of executing the accused, as in communist show trials. These are not democide. Nor is democide the killing of enemy soldiers in combat or of armed rebels, nor of non-combatants as a result of military action against military targets." End quote. North Korea is building new housing blocks in two of its repressive prison camps. That's according to the human rights group Amnesty International. The group announced Thursday that Chile is reliving the horrors of the Pinochet era with a new report exposing almost 10,000 new cases of human rights violations during the dictatorship, handed in to President Sebastian Washington, D.C. Human rights groups estimate up to 200,000 prisoners, including children, are currently being held. Some may have committed no crime. People do not leave. In power in Chile from 1973 to 1990, Augusto Pinochet died five years ago without ever being convicted on charges of human rights abuses, with hundreds of his military men still on Thus, Rummel's definition does not include all possible forms of government-induced or derived deaths. So things like euthanasia programs, abortion statistics, retributive justice for capital crimes, i.e. executions, or deaths resulting from state medical programs like, say, government hospital staff infection deaths, vaccine deaths, or medical malpractice deaths, are not counted. Personally, as a small-l libertarian-slash-minarchist, I think all government-caused deaths should be counted under this big tent of democide, but it's easy for me to see the arguments against my position. For example, people can say that a single aborted fetus isn't necessarily a person to be counted. Vaccines in hospitals have good intentions, not vindictive ones. Medically assisted suicide is sought out by the individual and not the state. And executions are a known punishment in many jurisdictions ahead of the crime's occurrence. Fair enough, and we'll save these topics for future discussions because even discounting all of the ones just struck from the tally, 
we still arrive at an astronomical and mind-numbing amount of deaths by government. Ones that include homicide, ethnocide, genocide, infanticide, mass killings of civilians, and politicide. A concept that Rummel insists, when calculated to its totality, exponentially surpasses that of war. That's right, I'll repeat that again. When calculated to its totality, democide figures exponentially surpass that of war. More people are killed by their government than by war. And for a better sense of what I'm about to say, because I understand a lot of people are visual learners, plus the sad reality that my Stalin quote at the beginning of this episode is more or less true, is that one person dying is a tragedy while a million people dying is a statistic, we should first consider the artistic rendition of the Ring of Tears. A link to this image can be found in the show notes, and it is additionally the thumbnail for this episode. I implore you to take a moment and check this out right now. This mind-blowing photo montage, which is described as a megatomb by the artist, memorializes those killed by their own governments since the year 1900. In an overlap of corpses, bones, blood, and skulls, we see rings wrapping around the planet Earth. And this is the really difficult part to digest. The artist is trying to get you to visualize 174 million deaths by government. Enough bodies, if lined up head to toe, to circle our planet about four times. Now you might be thinking to yourself, 174 million obviously sounds like a lot, but I can't even quantify that without some sort of reference. Allow me to help you contextualize it. If you're in the United States, that would essentially be half the population gone. It would entail the complete demographic deaths of New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, Phoenix, Philadelphia, San Antonio, and San Diego, and you're still not even close. Another way to look at it is to consider the entire current populations of Mexico, Germany, and Canada being killed, but slowly and over the course of over 125 years. That's about 2.1 million corpses per year on average. 174 million deaths by the state. And the distinction between war deaths and democide deaths is significant because, if you had to ask the average person, they would likely peg war and tangential disease as the leading causes of mass death. So let's briefly take stock of armed conflict for a moment. As author and anti-war activist Chris Hedges has written, quote, What is war? War is defined as an act of conflict that has claimed more than 1,000 lives. Has the world ever been at peace? Of the past 3,400 years, humans have been entirely at peace for 268 of them, or just 8% of recorded history. How many people have died in war? At least 108 million people were killed in wars in the 20th century alone. Estimates for the total number killed in wars throughout all of human history range from 150 million to 1 billion. War also has several other effects on the population, including decreasing the birth rate by taking men away from their wives. The reduced birth rate during World War II is estimated to have caused a population deficit of more than 20 million people. End quote. 
So if we take the Hedges' assertion that 108 million died from war, and I'll even tack on an additional 10% so as to not be conservative, you know, for the peripheral deaths that were related to the wars, we're sitting at about 119 million deaths. These war-caused deaths, that is to say, deaths of state versus state violence, of whom's legitimacy can be debated but is nonetheless removed by Rummel, is half of the total democide body count. And this is what I think of as the definitive smoke-filled room. Most would probably conjure up some economically driven situation with a briefcase full of cash and favors being traded. You know, something like, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours type situation. Whereas I'm thinking of Mal puffing on a cigarette while he dictates that all the sparrows be eradicated. Or an SS office adorned with gold trinkets and impeccably dressed men as they discuss the shipment of Jews to Auschwitz. Or in today's times, Iranian sheiks smoking Cuban cigars and calmly discussing the best method to crush the latest popular uprising. But again, I digress. At this point, you may be asking yourself, well, why is this significant or upsetting to you? Does it really matter how these deaths are classified? They were killed and are recognized as tragedies, so what's the difference? Well, I strongly disagree, so let's get into the relevance of proper categorization and conceptualization. The noise of gunfire rose from all over the center of Peking. It was unremitting. The largest unrecognized mass killing of the 20th century, the 1965 massacre of communists in Indonesia, a dark chapter of Cold War history. An international panel. It was here he saw people die of starvation. It was also here he was separated from his brothers. They separated me from my older and younger brother here. That's why I cry. I don't know where they were taken to be killed. The troops have been firing indiscriminately, but still, there are thousands of people on the streets who will not move back. The bicycle rickshaws. To wipe out communists from Indonesia, Suharto went on to rule the country for the next 31 years. In its ruling, the International People's Tribunal found the state of Indonesia not. The soldiers were shooting and the people on the truck had nothing. When the people got off the truck, they tied their hands. They walked the people to the hole they dug. Then they killed all those people. And then a second truck came. My main three concerns when it comes to democide revolve around the ideas of political utopianism, state power, political socialization, and how understanding these ideas leads to a more accurate representation of our world. For at the root of political crime and smoke-filled rooms the world over are a dedicated minority of idealists who want to utilize civil obedience and state legitimacy as a means to carry out their fantastical visions. For there is simply no other vehicle available to them that could accommodate these functions. And regardless of where the democides take place, and they have or are currently taking place at nearly every point in history and in every part of the world, there are certain overlapping themes we can realize for our current application. And absorbing these realities can help shape public discourse in a net positive direction, as well as serve as a credible warning for future atrocities. So we'll start with categorization. This is an absolute necessity. 
we usually can't properly place ideas and events in our minds without it being relative to something else. A measuring stick, if you will. Using one reminds us of the hypothetical difference between a paper cut and a loss of your right arm. We don't just say, well, you were injured and bled for both instances. One has more seriousness attached to it, and the more we normalize the understanding and usage of democide, as opposed to genocide, ethnocide, etc., the more accurately we can identify and attribute deaths to political criminals. Because as we've demonstrated and hopefully you have noticed over the course of your life, political crimes are uniquely murderous, widespread, and depraved. We should understand and interpret their deeds as such. In a similar vein, we should properly categorize political violence to better understand history and its relationship to our current situation. For as another political scientist I'm quite fond of, Professor Harold Laswell reminds us, quote, Politics is who gets what, when, where, and how. End quote. So when we start to notice qualitative and quantitative patterns throughout our investigations, we might be more prone to act against it, or better yet, prevent it from ever blossoming to begin with. And our pattern recognition formula is even better served when it's nested inside of a realization that, although history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, it does tend to rhyme. And this links in with another foundational concept that leads me to assert why democide is an all-but-marginalized topic or concept. And this is the reality of our political socialization. Political socialization is a term that is described as, quote, the process by which individuals learn and frequently internalize a political lens framing their perception of how power is arranged and how the world around them is and should be organized. Those perceptions, in turn, shape and define individuals' definitions of who they are and how they should behave in the political and economic institutions in which they live. Political socialization also encompasses the way in which people acquire values and opinions that shape their political stance and ideology. It is a study of the developmental processes by which people of all ages and adolescence acquire political cognition, attitudes, and behaviors. It refers to a learning process by which norms and behaviors acceptable to a well-running political system are transmitted from one generation to the next. It is through the performance of this function that individuals are inducted into the political culture and their orientations toward political objects are formed. Schools, media, and the state have a major influence on this process. End quote. Now to an anti-authoritarian and anarchist ear, this might ring closer to something like indoctrination. This is because all of our mainstream institutions have a vested interest in self-propagating the status quo, and conditioning children to adhere to these ideals would seem rather self-serving. And despite the alleged benevolence of their expressed ideals, the undergirding of the whole endeavor is statist in nature. This means that they put up the government and its programs as the guarantor, savior, and solution to all of life's problems. Now, without getting into a philosophical debate that's tangential to our focus on democide, many of us consider this to be patently ridiculous. But for our more general purposes here, 
the understanding of political socialization is simply to remind us of what the average person is subjected to over the course of their lives. That is to say, we are brought up within a regime paradigm where your country, your nation, your state is everything. Or at least, the overarching leviathan that lords over your existence. To many people, it's on a nearly quasi-religious level and serves as a springboard for their hopes, aspirations, and even just day-to-day -day relations with their fellow citizens. If you want an everyday example of how this quasi-panopticon of government conditioning works, think about the basic anxiety nearly everyone would have if you don't stand for a national anthem at a sporting event. Now ask yourself this, why is that? And what, if anything, does standing for the flag actually mean? The gist of it all is that we're all supposed to believe in the same things, morally defend the same laws, and adopt similar cultural ideals and so forth, blah blah blah, with the basic contention being that the state is intrinsically good. We are the state, and the state is us. And the slow envelopment of the individual into the state lay the intersection of two different ideas we need to stay cognizant of in reference to democide. 1. Government is valorized because of the global state-centric order, i.e., it is the highest authority over its area of sovereignty. And in the absence of a global governance scheme, the state is supreme. And two, this idea of government as a tool for good, because remember, no one ever says we're going to make our society worse with government, has led us to the worst kinds of people rapaciously trying to access its power for their utopian plans. Combining and looking at these realities together under the democide theory, we can, and should, start to identify political actors who want to implement sweeping social changes, regardless of how benign, beneficial, or costless they claim their plans to be. And as we'll see later on in this episode, once we get to the authoritarian connection section, we'll see that ideologies that require a massive sacrifice or glorious plan on behalf of the citizenry are always the worst and most disgusting regimes of all. And this leads us to a couple democide characteristics that typically go hand in hand and are universally shared amongst any case you could dream up out of the annals of history. These are the quote-unquote good intentions of the status faithful and those very intentions being linked to government power. Without which, as I will constantly remind you, None of their plans could ever come to fruition, not even in the slightest. So now that we've established some definitions and numbers, as mentally debilitating as they are, let's look at which types of regimes are most likely to engage in democide. It's still incredibly hard to watch. It was filmed during the 100 days of the Rwandan genocide, and as the 20th anniversary of the genocide approaches, Rwandans are preparing themselves to commemorate the horror that unfolded Her in April. mother's first husband were murdered by Stalin in the 1930s. His paranoia that he had enemies everywhere triggered more than one million executions. In my lifetime, nothing like this must ever be repeated. This burial site was top secret during dangerous. Intellectuals, artists, and monks were systematically rounded up and killed then buried in mass graves, known as the killing fields. 
ordinary Cambodians were forced into huge labor camps where thousands more died from hunger and exhaustion. In a suburban oh, Mary Jean and her daughter Kirezi ask us not to show their faces. Dealing with the reality of what happened remains a struggle. I feel bad to ask Kirezi. Families have put up photographs, but it's not possible yet to say precisely whose remains are buried in each location. Back in the 5th century BC, there existed one of the foundational historians of antiquity named Thucydides. Among his most notable contributions to the understanding of the classical world was his documentation of the Peloponnesian War. And even when comparing and contrasting those distant times with ours, we realize that certain truths seem to traverse time and space directly across our radically different experiences. He is noted as saying that, quote, the strong will do as they will, and the weak suffer as they must. Though he was speaking about an intercity war between Athens and Sparta, many governments around the world today seem to be hell-bent on violent confrontations with their own people. And not just civil wars in the widely understood parlance of the term. I'm talking about governments who are literally at war with their own citizens. Citizens who are almost unanimously unarmed, overmatched, and living in a state of perpetual fear. Yet these relatively defenseless and overwhelmingly impoverished people are demonized and often destroyed for what's in their minds, the contents of which various governmental organizations are more than happy to splatter over the nearest wall. People who refuse to cooperate with regime plans. People who believe in diametrically opposed beliefs to the government. And people who simply won't shut up and go along with the proverbial program. Or maybe pogrom would better fit our topic. And the worst offenders in our exploration of democide are the radical leftists, the Marxists, and the communists. And it's not even close. As our beloved Professor Rummel reminds us in his essay, Murder by Communism, quote, Few would deny any longer that communism and its variants meant in practice bloody terrorism, deadly purges, lethal gulags, forced labor, fatal deportations, man-made famines, executions, show trials, and genocide. It is also widely known that as a result, hundreds of millions of innocent people have been murdered in cold blood. But how can we understand all the killing by communists? Is it the marriage of an absolutist ideology with absolute power? Communists believe that they knew the truth. Absolutely. They believe that they knew through Marxism what would bring about the greatest human welfare and happiness. And they believe that power, the dictatorship of the proletariat, must be used to tear down the old feudal or capitalist order and rebuild society and a culture to realize this utopia. Nothing must stand in the way of its achievement. The Communist Party was thus above any law. All institutions, cultural norms, traditions, and sentiments were expendable, and the people were as though lumber and bricks to be used in building a new world. And constructing this utopia was seen as though a war on poverty, exploitation, imperialism, and inequality. And for the greater good, as in real war, people are killed. And thus, this war for the communist utopia had its necessary enemy casualties, 
The clergy, the bourgeois, the capitalists, the wreckers, the counter-revolutionaries, the rightists, the tyrants, the rich, the landlords, and the non-combatants that unfortunately got caught in the battle. In a war, millions may die, but the cause may well be justified, as in the defeat of Hitler and an utterly racist Nazism. And to many communists, the cause of a communist utopia was such as to justify all deaths. The irony of this is that communism in practice, even after decades of total control, did not improve the lot of the average person, but usually made their living conditions worse than they were before the revolution. It is not by chance that the greatest famines have occurred within the Soviet Union, where about 12 million died, and communist China, where about 27 million were killed. In total, almost 55 million people died in various communist famines and associated diseases, a little over 10 million of them from democidal famine alone. And what made the secular religion of communism so utterly lethal was its seizure of all the state's instruments of force and coercion. This was to immediately destroy or control all independent sources of power, such as the church, the professions, private businesses, schools, and of course, the family. But there is a larger lesson to be learned from this horrendous sacrifice to one ideology. That is that no one can be trusted with power. The more power the center has to impose the beliefs of an ideological or religious elite, the more likely human lives are to be sacrificed. End quote. Now to switch it up a little bit and do something completely counterintuitive, let me give voice to some nuanced, albeit increasingly rare, and quite ludicrous arguments that could say, justify a murderous decades-long campaign like Mao's cultural revolution. Now you can do with this what you please, but at a bare minimum, this exercise should enable you to detect the lengths to which a totalitarian mindset can go in order to justify and excuse mass death. For this is a defining and near-universal characteristic of authoritarian-style regimes and has been repeatedly employed throughout the last two centuries. And as a general PSA to anyone who doesn't follow politics, power, or the history of governance, you should always be aware of, and fear, any political movement that unwaveringly insists upon coupling utopian ideals with absolute power. And as a quick refresher, Mao's great proletarian cultural revolution was a socio-political movement starting in 1966. Its primary focus was to enforce Mao's version of peasant Marxism on Chinese society, as well as to purify the Communist Party from perceived exploiters of capitalism. The pogrom lasted 10 years, right up until Mao's death and mobilized the masses to summarily eliminate alleged subversive elements who were seen as standing in the way of the revolution and perverting the people's future. This obviously led to widespread violence and political repressions, as well as the destruction of historical and cultural sites and artifacts across the country. Anything seen as old was a target for destruction and re-education. This meant that literally millions of people were arrested, imprisoned, or executed, and others were subjected to public humiliation and physical abuses. The famous struggle sessions of denouncing capital wealth and traditional mindsets were a notable tool of social control. So overall, 
It was a democidal state-instigated program that can be held liable for literally tens of millions of deaths in its totality. But let's hear them out for a minute. As I'm sure some factions within the CCP would argue to this day, the Cultural Revolution drastically improved baseline national education through standardization and equality, for Mao believed that the existing educational system was outdated and elitist, and that the Cultural Revolution helped to democratize education and make it more accessible to the masses. I'm sure another aspect that they would point out is the elimination of corruption. Mao saw corruption as a major obstacle to the progress of the Chinese Revolution and believed that the Cultural Revolution was necessary to root out the corrupt officials and institutions. And finally, they would likely point towards it generally promoting equality as a national virtue. Not equality under the law, but equality and outcome. For Mao was committed to the idea of a classless society, and the Cultural Revolution was a necessary program to eliminate the remnants of the old feudal order and break down the barriers that separated different social classes. In this regard, I think that they'd additionally say it leveled the proverbial playing field and created greater equality between different groups in Chinese society. So after hearing all that, what does it sound like to you? To my ear, it smacks of cracking a few eggs to make an omelette. Like a few deaths here and there don't matter if the ends justify the means. Like one death being a tragedy and a million being a statistic. And just how many eggs should a government crack before they achieve their goals? This is the inherent flaw in any collectivist mindset, whether it be the tankiest of Soviets or the most populist of Democrats. But this is something the democidal regimes prey upon. Using your own altruistic emotions against you in order to fulfill the greater good, or the national interest, or the future utopia. But this is not just to single out the communists. We equally have to note the reality of right-wing dictatorships who have also wrought untold suffering onto the world. Bobby Duval is somebody who has not forgotten. Bobby spent 17 months in Duvalier's most notorious prison, Fort Dimanche, and he says that he came out a walking skeleton, that he saw 180 people die in his cell. Which the shocking was murder of a prominent Russian dissident seen here dying in his hospital bed and an act of nuclear terrorism, say British officials, in the heart of London, just yards from the U.S. Embassy. The Great Chinese Famine, as it is well called, killed around 30 million Chinese people and caused approximately the same number of births to be lost or postponed. Anui had the highest death toll, 18%. FSB operation to kill... Duvalier is not just a regular person. Duvalier represents 20 years of this systematic destruction of life, of individuals, of society, of government. Alexander Litvinenko, who fled Russia for the UK to seek asylum, was an outspoken critic of the Kremlin, accusing President Putin of orchestrating the deadly bombings of Russian apartment buildings in 1999 to justify a second conflict. The Great Famine, according to the government and the Chinese Communist Party, was caused by a series of natural disasters. Communist historiography refers to it as the three years of natural disasters rather than the Great Famine. This claim undoubtedly...
Hitler, Pinochet, Mussolini, Putin, Franco, Suharto, Hirohito, Batista, and I could go on and on and on. For though the leftists have the total body count on their side of the ledger, the fascists have the intensity of death on theirs. And by this I mean the expedient and concentrated mobilization of democide. They're just more efficient at it. From what Professor Rummel shows us in his extensive studies, all of which are generously available for free on the University of Hawaii's website, by the way, which is ironically funny when you consider the heaviness of our topic juxtaposed against the beauty and leisure associated with a tropical paradise, but nonetheless, getting back to our right-wing democide. The per capita murders under fascism seem to be amplified when compared with the lefties, both in terms of speed and deadliness. Consider for a moment the relatively smaller population and short existence of Hitler's Nazi Germany, a nation-state with a population of 65 million and 12 years of existence ultimately left a grand total, according to Rummel, of 21 million democidal deaths. Now stack that up against the USSR's approximately 200 million population on average over a 75-year existence that democided 61 million people. In a grotesque comparison, the communist deaths are, on average, more spread out. But the Nazi regime inflicted 50% more democidal deaths per year on average. So if they had been around as long as the Soviets, there's no reason to doubt that they would have stacked up exponentially more corpses based on their starting statistics. Especially considering, in a nightmarish and dystopian alternate timeline, if the Nazis, if successful, even in mainland Europe, would have been unimpeded in demociding tens of millions more without a pesky war getting in their way. But back in reality, the reasons I want to focus on the leftists is because not only are they far and away the leaders on the democide scoreboard, their ideology still, for absurd reasons I still can't quite comprehend, enjoy the popular support of people around the world. Of which, their arguably worst offender, the People's Republic of China, is still in business today, obviously under new management compared to the Maoists, but nonetheless waving the banner of authoritarian socialism as its bedrock philosophy. Would we even entertain the idea of any other historical monster being worthy of such respect that they enjoy today? I mean, the Western world was united against the Soviets in a Cold War. China is the West's biggest trading partner. Writing in a column for Bitter Winter, sociologist and religious scholar Massimo Introvini states that, quote, There is only one world record the CCP holds without dispute, one we should all remember today in our meditations and prayers. No organization in human history has killed more human beings than the CCP. Not Nazi Germany, nor Soviet Russia, not even the Mongol invasions. And it should be remembered that for China, our estimate of 50 million victims is extremely conservative. Others believe the figure to be closer to 80 million. During their civil war, the communists killed some 3 million civilians, often for the sole reason that they were perceived as class enemies. In the immediate years after seizing power, the CCP under Chairman Mao executed at least 1 million Chinese people labeled as counter-revolutionaries. There were also human-created famines before 1958, which killed another half-million victims. 
the Great Leap Forward and its consequences, and the Great Chinese Famine, happened from 1958 to 1962 and are widely regarded as the greatest human-made disasters in the history of planet Earth. Again, victim estimates vary and by using our method of finding an average between different reliable scholars, we counted 38.5 million deaths, and others believe the actual number to be much higher. A less controversial figure indicates that 1.5 million were executed during the Great Leap Forward to get rid of opponents and whistleblowers, with 2 million as a conservative estimate of those killed during the Cultural Revolution. Scholars also believe that excluding the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution periods, victims from 1950 to Tiananmen Square, who were either executed murdered extrajudicially, killed during the repression of protests, and starved or exhausted to death in labor camps, were at least 3 million. And by counting half a million victims of the post-Tiananmen era, we consider some academic minimalist accounts of deaths in Tibet and Xinjiang to remain true to our method, although we strongly suspect that the CCP in recent years has been much more lethal than widely reported. End quote. Again, after hearing something like that, we can hearken back to the start of this episode. One murder made a villain, millions a hero, as Beale so eloquently wrote. Now we need to make a connection that Professor Rommel often points out and would be obvious to students of history, but nonetheless needs enunciation. And that is the irrefutable connection between regime control of society and democide itself. In this, we find that liberal democracy is the least egregious form of government, but as we'll discuss in the next chapter of this episode, it comes with caveats. We then see a sharp rise in deaths once you get into an authoritarian style of government. Your strongmen and faux democracies tend to fall into this category. And then finally, we see an exponentially increased amount from even authoritarian state-centric violence when we get to totalitarianism. Now you might be asking yourself, what is the difference between an authoritarian and a totalitarian? Well, despite what certain war hawks and military contractor lobbyists would say about the current Eastern European conflict, it's essentially the difference between Hitler and Putin. Putin being the authoritarian who feigns democratic action through the Duma and populist appeal, but is renowned for corrupt elections, killing political opponents, stifling critical media, and being the ringleader for an oligarchical economic order. Now compare him to Hitler, who, if you just look at the domestic political record as opposed to the war he instigated, is Putin times a hundred. He didn't even pretend to have elections. He abolished them. He didn't just kill certain problematic opponents. He had them, their whole group, and parts of their extended families arrested, jailed, tortured, and killed. Furthermore, there was no critical media. There was only state-created propaganda. And the economy? Well, again, it was at the behest and service of the state. Private business had to serve the total goals of the Nazi regime, or else it was absorbed and destroyed. The authoritarians seem to at least partially understand Machiavelli and his cynical method of real politic. As in, they tried to maneuver the system to their will, as opposed to making everything about the system. 
As in this example, from his seminal work The Prince, Machiavelli states that, quote, People should either be caressed or crushed. If you do them minor damage, they will get their revenge. But if you cripple them, there is nothing they can do. If you need to injure someone, do it in such a way that you do not have to fear their vengeance. End quote. The extreme authoritarians seem to ignore this advice about caressing or inflicting only what is necessary. This is because the totalitarian impulse is all-encompassing, all-seeing, all-knowing. Authoritarians still have room for a little freedom, a little economic activity, and a little social activism. Just not too much. Certainly not enough to interfere with their usually narrow agendas. For the totalitarian, everything is on the agenda, most important of which is the functioning of your mind. Recall that old Orwell adage from 1984 that if the party says 2 plus 2 equals 5, then that is what reality is. That's what they want and need, for you to believe untruths, to spout newspeak, and to check yourself for thought crimes. Now, if you haven't noticed by this point, I'm a big believer in liberty. I usually can't shut up about it. And it's amusingly ironic to me that despite the actions and stated intentions of certain regimes, there is still this nagging need to at least present a modicum of freedom to people even when it's incontrovertibly absent. There's always some veneer of the people's will of republicanism or democratic legitimacy. Consider the Democratic People's Republic of North Korea, or the Democratic Republic of the Congo, or the United Socialist Soviet Republics. There actually seems to be a direct correlation between the amount of highfalutin ideals crammed into a country's name and the amount of atrocities it's willing to commit against its citizenry. Run the experiment for yourself if you have a minute, but the fact remains consistent that extremist politics badly wants the cover of legitimacy attached to their brand. The lip service to democracy and to the people's wishes are a kind of positive freedom that I think should be roundly distrusted and openly mocked. No one can speak for the people because the people are merely a collection of individuals who are largely stuck together because of their birthplace. They all have unique opinions, experiences, and goals in life. And any professional liar, like a politician, should immediately be considered dangerous if they start speaking in such grandiose and sweeping language. So again, to remind you about the death tolls attached to various democidal regimes, we go back to Rummel's work. In his estimations, liberal democracies are responsible for perhaps one million deaths in the 20th century. The authoritarians clock in at around 52 million corpses. And the totalitarians? represented most prominently by Pol Pot, Hitler, Stalin, and Mao, are responsible for a median average of about 148 million corpses. Let that sink in for a second. And again, for my math PhDs out there, you might be thinking to yourselves, hey, he said 174 million near the beginning, and this isn't adding up now. These were the median averages. Rummel's high-end figures for the totalitarians is 305 million deaths. Before Adolf Hitler's first visit to Italy, there was widespread concern about hiding any- Five years ago, he created the Institute for the Investigation of Communist Crimes, winning the support of President Basescu. 
But when a prayer began unearthing the bodies of Sakurasate victims and demanding justice, Basescu, fearful of what he was finding... And in this video, an ISIS fighter speaks to a large and vocal crowd of supporters in Mosul. The fighter, his face covered, tells the crowd his group will establish a state that will protect the rights of Sunni Muslims. Over the past year, the militants used this army to evoke terror both domestically and abroad. From the earliest days of the fascist party in Italy, Mussolini's black shirts worked to get rid of any opposition. The black shirts' motto was "Mini frego" or "I don't care." But not far away, in the town of Pitesht, an equally gruesome chapter of Romanian history unfolded not so long ago, and some of its torture victims are still around. Now at this point, a lot of you may have been saying to yourselves, so I guess our Western liberal democracies come out of this looking pretty good then. Maybe there is a reason we see ourselves as the shining city on a hill. Well, it's a bit more complicated than that, I'm afraid. We, and I say that as a Canadian and future American, aren't off the hook that easily. For even though we are politically socialized to recoil in horror from a Maoist quote like, political power flows from the barrel of a gun, we nonetheless find it useful to adopt this mentality when it serves our purposes. We just tend to do it in a roundabout way and have other people hold the guns. And once we peel back the layer of alleged wholesomeness, it often reveals itself in the form of economically advantageous situations where we need quote-unquote the right guy in there. Or when, for example, our arms manufacturers want to peddle their latest products. Or if we say, need to build an army base abroad for quote-unquote, our national interest. Western liberal democracies, for all their relative peace and avoidance of democidal pathologies at home, still have a significant amount of foreigners' bloods on their hands. And the hands of their business partners. This is also to say nothing of the monsters we have and continue to back around the international community. Though this usually comes in the form of military aid, it can also be physical armaments transfers, intelligence sharing, special ops training, or black budget financing. But before we get into all of that mess, because as anyone knows who follows politics in the West, it does tend to get messy with so many competing social, political, economic, and security interests. The pluralist perspective, as it were. I have to denote that as far as Professor Rummel goes, he's a big-time advocate for democratic rule. Much more so than I am. But this is not to say I'm an authoritarian, because anyone who knows anything about me knows that I despise authoritarianism in all its forms. My view is something closer to minarchism, or what is more widely known as the Night Watchman State. I'll include links in the show notes so you can discover it for yourself, but essentially, I'm skeptical of fickle mobs and their swaying interests. So democratic rule, from my vantage point, is, at its best, a system of appeasing an easily cajoled rabble of low-IQ participants. And at its worst, democracy is an elitist sham contrived by corporate interests who only present a very narrow selection of policies that are well within their spectrum of interest. But let's get back to R.J. Rummel's democratic peace theory as he would have presented it. Overall, 
he would have stated that democracies are less likely to go to war with each other compared to non-democratic countries. This theory is based on the idea that democracies have a peaceful and cooperative orientation towards one another because of their shared values and relatively similar political systems. Rommel's theory challenged a more traditional realist notion that war is an inevitable part of human nature, and his theory provided evidence support the argument that peace is almost certain between democratic nations. Now to further understand Rommel's democratic peace theory, you have to understand it is rooted in the concept of a Kantian triangle. Immanuel Kant, a German philosopher, argued that democracies are inherently peaceful because they are based on the principles of freedom, equality, and human dignity. According to Kant, these principles created a political environment where individuals could engage in peaceful and cooperative behavior. Rummel expanded on this idea by showing that democracies also have a peaceful orientation towards one another. This is because democratic countries share similar values, use institutions to settle disputes, and can cross-promote peace and cooperation as global values. Supporters of Rummel's theory have been supported by numerous empirical studies that have found that the likelihood of conflict between democratic countries is significantly lower compared to non-democratic countries. For example, a study by the International Peace Research Institute found that between 1816 and 1992, there were only three militarized conflicts between democratic countries. On the other hand, there were literally hundreds of armed conflicts between non-democratic countries during that same period. Also aiding Rummel's theory are rhetorical assertions that democratic countries are more likely to engage in peaceful negotiations and diplomacy to resolve their disputes. This is because democracies are allegedly based on the principle of popular sovereignty. This is a situation wherein the government is accountable to the people. And in this type of system, leaders are more likely to seek peaceful solutions to conflicts because they know that the public supports peace and then they have to face re-election. So the burden of justifying war to a national polity would be significantly heavier. For the authoritarian and the totalitarian, do not need to ask any questions of the people they rule over. Now, I'm a big proponent of a rigid and minimalist state that doesn't backtrack from its liberty-centric constitution for any reason whatsoever. War, disease, or economic hardship be damned. Liberty should never be supplanted in favor of an unfortunate happenstance. But I digress. Professor Rummel seems to be a classical liberal in the sense that he believes in the idealist form of democracy and the peace that it brings. The kind you read about in your high school civics course, but for him, with a respectable amount of relative appreciation. And this is to say that in his deep submersion into the totality of violence over history and the unbridled evil that he has researched throughout his life, it's easy to see why he could present liberal democracies in the light he does. Comparing France to say that of the Soviet Union in terms of death toll isn't even a close race. The totalitarian's body count is lapping the French hundreds of times before they even leave the starting block. And again, it's hard to disagree with many of Professor Rummel's findings, if you take them at face value, and only apply them with a domestic lens. Writing in his landmark book, Power Kills, from 1997, Rummel gives us an overview of his democratic peace theory. Quote, What specifically has been uncovered or verified about democracy and violence? 
First, is that well-established democracies do not make war on or rarely commit lesser violence against each other. The relationship between democracy and international war has been the most thoroughly researched question and all who have investigated this have agreed. Democracies do not fight amongst themselves. Possible exceptions to this, as in the War of 1812 between Great Britain and the United States, or the Spanish-American War, were not found to have been really democracies or to have been cases in which one or another democracy was either newly established or marginally democratic. Second, the more two nations are democratic, the less likely war or lesser violence between them. There is a scale of democraticness here, at one end of which are two undoubted democracies with no likelihood of war and virtually zero probability of lesser violence between them. And at the other end are those nations most undemocratic, the totalitarian ones, that have the greatest chance of war and other violence amongst themselves. This finding shows that democracy is not a simple dichotomy, democracy versus non-democracy, but a continuum. Third, the more a nation is democratic, the less severe its overall foreign violence. This finding in particular is disputed amongst some researchers but I will show in later detail that there is no disagreement on this topic. Fourth, in general, the more democratic a nation, the less likely it will have domestic collective violence. Studies that include the relevant variables and indicators support this empirically, and those studies I have carried out specifically to test this are uniformly positive. Finally, in general, the more democratic a nation, the less its democide. Although in the literature, democracy has been suggested as a way of reducing genocide and mass murder, data for testing this empirically have been unavailable until very recently. Indeed, so far as I appear to be the only one to have explicitly tested this and have found that democide is highly and inversely related to democracy. This holds up even when controls are introduced for economic development, education, national power, culture, and ethnic-slash-racial and religious diversity. Case studies of the most extensive democides, such as that in the Soviet Union, Communist China, Nazi Germany, and Cambodia, support this conclusion. In sum then, I will show that, overwhelmingly, the evidence supports this general principle. Democracy is a method of nonviolence. Democracy is a practical solution to war and all other kinds of collective, that is, political regime, violence. True, it will not end such violence per se, but among all types of regimes, democracy minimizes this violence. And compared to its opposite, totalitarian regimes in which millions may die through democide and rebellions and aggressive wars, democracy virtually eliminates this source of death. End quote. So there's the totality of his argument. But before we get into the periphery and the business of war in liberal democracies, let's look at the straight-up record of the recent past in North America. Outside of a handful of instances that will likely be covered in future episodes, like the Kent State military killings, the MOVE firebombings in Philadelphia, and incidents like Waco and Ruby Ridge, you'd be hard-pressed to find a high numerical value of democidal deaths on the North American continent, or the liberal democracies generally on a global basis. No doubt you'd have a different perspective if you were a Native American though, 
and could point to active state-led eugenics policies in Western Canada leading right up until the 1970s. Or if you were the family member of a KKK lynching victim that was codified by local politicians and law enforcement. A loyal and well-propagandized statist of Canada or the United States would say something like, We run a clean system that follows law and order and everyone is equal under our democracy. And much like Rummel, if you had completely insular worldviews and sustained your information diet on corporate media, well, you'd probably assume you were right. But unfortunately, we have the receipts. Specifically, the bills of sale for weapons, the intelligence and material support for authoritarians, a state corporate nexus that props up banana republics, and the narrow military interests that continuously drive up the national debt for blood and empire. And this whole exercise is not one that should be viewed as an attack on Rummel's overarching thesis. It is hypothetically possible that as time goes on, more and more of the world will democratize, and this in turn will lead to an overall reduction in global democide figures. But again, a very modern and depraved example springs to the forefront when we talk about liberal democracy, authoritarian opponents, and violence. The Iraq War of 2003. Ostensibly enacted to deprive the Hussein regime of its WMDs, American democracy, under the Bush Doctrine for preemptive war, attacked the Middle Eastern nation. Not democide yet. I mean, don't worry, ISIS would eventually do this to the Iraqi people once the Americans backed off but aggression nonetheless. And it should be reminded to everyone that the WMDs under which the Iraq war was undertaken were never found, and unilateral invasion of a sovereign nation was condemned overwhelmingly by a majority of the international community. So yes, as we stated earlier, there is definitely a strong link between political authoritarianism and democide. But democracies, they aren't off the hook. Think about all those right-wing dictators and faux Republicans the U.S. has backed from the Philippines at the turn of the 20th century, right up until and including the Saudi kingdom of this very moment. Would these places have been able to subject their people to brutality and bloodshed if not for American support? And what about the Western corporations who prop up absolutely disgusting political regimes? A few examples should suffice. Take Coca-Cola, for example. During the apartheid era... Coca-Cola was accused of supporting the apartheid regime in South Africa by supporting its operations and sponsoring sports teams that excluded non-white athletes. In a similar vein, you could look at ExxonMobil and the Indonesian military. During the late 1990s and early 2000s, ExxonMobil was accused of off-the-books dark funding of the Indonesian military, which was responsible for widespread human rights abuses in that country including the direct oppression of local communities and of willful environmental destruction. And finally, you could look at Nestle and authoritarian regimes in the Middle East. Nestle has been accused of supporting authoritarian regimes by doing business with the state-owned companies and by advertising its products in a way that reinforces traditional gender roles. These are just a few of the thousands of examples of Western liberal democratic corporations that have been accused of supporting democidal political systems. But what if I told you it got even worse than that? What if you were to take a look at, say, the global arms trade? This is an industry that is dominated by Western liberal democracies. Refer to the great Andrew Feinstein's book, Shadow World, if you want an in-depth scholarly work on the subject. 
But for our purposes here, I will remind you that the global arms trade refers to the buying and selling of weapons, military equipment, and related technologies between countries and private companies. This trade encompasses a wide range of products, including small arms, like handguns, grenades, and rifles, but also large items, like tanks, fighter jets, missiles, and other advanced military technology. This is an extremely lucrative and often state-backed and subsidized industry in the democratic nations. Unsurprisingly, the sale of arms also greatly fuels conflicts. Take a look at the relationship between, say, Raytheon and the Ukrainian government right now. Likewise, these products of death contribute to human rights abuses by democidal regimes and making the entire trade a highly charged topic. Governments and international organizations, such as the UN, have attempted to regulate the global arms trade through agreements, such as the Arms Trade Treaty. And without getting into the mess and world of difference between private firearm ownership at the individual level in, say, rural Nebraska, and the sale of a fleet of F-35s to Saudi Arabia, we can easily guess which countries continually block the advancement of like-minded treaties that seek to regulate the international trade in arms. And despite the global institutional efforts, the international arms trade remains largely unchecked, and with many countries continuing to export weapons to countries with poor human rights records and ongoing conflicts. As a result, the global arms trade continues to be a major source of controversy and a focus of advocacy efforts by human rights organizations and peace activists. But who are the top producers and profiteers of such weaponry? If you look at the top 10 national weapons producers, they are, in order, the United States, Russia, United Kingdom, France, Germany, China, Italy, the Czech Republic, the Netherlands, and Israel. So eight of the top 10 global arms manufacturers and salesmen are liberal democracies. But who are the biggest global customers of said arms purchases? Again, in order, they are number 1. India 2. Saudi Arabia 3. Australia 4. South Korea 5. Egypt 6. China 7. Qatar 8. United Kingdom 9. Pakistan and 10. Japan So 5 of the top 10 arms importers or purchasers are authoritarian or totalitarian. And notice the complete absence of overlap between net buyers and spenders. Not exactly what David Ricardo had in mind when he posited his comparative advantage trade theory. Pretty sure the USA isn't securing large amounts of Pakistani sugarcane for a $450 million fighter jet. So this raises a lot of uncomfortable questions about liberal democracies and their alleged adherence to human rights, popular will, and equality when they directly funnel or sell weapons to regimes that routinely engage in democide. But don't take it from me. Listen to former president and Nazi smashing general Dwight Eisenhower in his final address to the American people. Improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. How to do this? Three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now this conjunction 
of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. So those of us residing in liberal democracies are in a paradoxical situation. We purport to uphold universal human rights and democratic values, yet often find our government representatives supporting regimes that violate those very same principles. To me, this undermines the credibility of any liberal democracy and makes it harder for us to effectively promote actual peace, actual human rights, and actual free markets in other parts of the world. To be fair to the pragmatists, though, we are often faced with difficult decisions about how to balance principles and values within the realities of a complex and interdependent global political matrix. Some might argue that supporting authoritarian regimes is necessary in order to protect their own national interests, while others believe that it is necessary to take a more principled stand and refuse to support regimes that violate basic human rights. You'll have to decide this for yourself. Personally, I reject aiding and abetting political extremism both at home and abroad, which would mean losing a lot of money, but surviving on principles and goodwill, which in the long run, I think would be regarded as a net positive for any nation. Look to the U.S. Founding Fathers and their warnings about entangling alliances if you need any further arguments. So far from trashing Rummel's conclusion about the democratic peace, we have to realize that it comes with a lot of deadly caveats, and he doesn't mention them. But this shouldn't dissuade you from upholding his coinage of democide or the theories that he upholds. Just remember that even within our allegedly free, democratic, and just political order, there are a lot of smoke-filled rooms where palms are greased, deals are hatched, and death is sold like any other product you can buy at the grocery store. Exports arms and defense services with the expectation that this will help produce strong, legitimate militaries capable of defending themselves. Instead, in many cases, U.S. arms have inadvertently helped to reinforce the corruption and authoritarianism that underpins regional instability. This is because arms. But commercial motivations can influence controversial arms sales. I think it's quite clear that in many cases the economic reasons are very important and are the final... They are fearsome-looking machines. The LAV-6, meant to carry troops and weapons into battle. And a Canadian company is selling them to Saudi Arabia.
they are destined mostly for the powerful Saudi Arabian National Guard, known as the White Usually parliaments and citizens are forbidden to ask even about the most mundane aspects of these contracts, supposedly on national security grounds. The amount of money can be But is the global arms trade as it currently operates making the world safer or more dangerous? ...such as these have been a fixture of modern warfare for decades. Debate over the Saudi lab deal has taken place largely in a vacuum. ...with the parliament to answer allegations of billions of dollars lost to bribes. Arms purchased for personal enrichment or patronage are rarely used effectively for defense. It drains countries' coffers and helps lead to the kind of public anger over corruption that swept the region in the Arab Spring of 2011. Back in the early 19th century, one of my favorite philosophers of all time mused about the sufferings of the world. And even way back then, he recognized the plane of existence that everyday people are on by having to constantly contend with the overarching themes of death, sadness, and perpetual hardships. Anybody who knows his work or has a Buddhist bent to their thinking can grasp the concept that human beings are doomed to suffer, but that this may indeed be the purpose of life itself. Arthur Schopenhauer notes how, quote, the best consolation in misfortune or affliction of any kind will be the thought of other people who are still in a worse plight than yourself. And this is a form of consolation open to everyone. But what an awful fate this means for mankind as a whole. We are like lambs in a field, disporting ourselves under the eye of the butcher, who chooses out first one and then another for his prey. So it is that in our good days, we are still unconscious of the evil fate that may presently be in store for us. End quote. Now it may seem callous to end on this type of a note, but I wanted to remind everyone that throughout history, democide has been a recurring issue, with governments killing their own citizens for a variety of reasons, including political, ideological, and economic ones. In modern times, democide continues to be a problem in many countries. In particular, countries with authoritarian governments that have little respect for human rights. For example, in North Korea, the government has been accused of committing mass killings and crimes against humanity, including political prison camps and widespread torture and abuse of its citizens. And our democide expert, R.J. Rummel, argues that democide is a direct result of the concentration of power in the hands of government leaders. When a government has too much power, it becomes easier for leaders to commit mass killings without being held accountable for their actions. He also argues that the absence of checks and balances, such as a free press, an independent judiciary, and an active civil society, allows governments to commit democide without any fear of punishment. And indeed, Rommel's work advocates the idea that democide highlights the importance of political and economic institutions in preventing government-led mass deaths. He argues that the spread of democracy, the protection of individual rights, and the development of a strong civil society can help to prevent democide. In addition, he advocates international institutions, such as the United Nations and other human rights organizations, could play an important role in holding governments accountable for their actions and preventing democide in the future, although I find this to be unlikely. For even though I recognize the superiority of liberal democracy over authoritarian political schemes, people like me are not content to just accept the lesser of two evils. 
or three evils if you include Rommel's other distinction of totalitarianism. Regardless, when we anarchists, libertarians, minarchists, and objectivists start to grumble about the state of freedom, it should cause your ears to perk up. We're constantly on the lookout for political overreach, abuse of power, and the slippery slopes of tyranny. You might not like us, you might not agree with our politics, but goddammit we are radically protective of individual liberty, property rights, and unwarranted aggression against individuals. Especially when it comes from the state. The ostensible values that liberal democracies are allegedly founded upon, we uphold as the highest of ideals. For at the root of all social conflicts, whether it's drugs, law, pornography, industrial policies, economic reforms, equality of the sexes, government surveillance, national defense, environmentalism, technology, social media, religion, the family, and maybe even the bureaucracy, they all come up against the same test. The test of its justness or necessity against the intrinsic and unalienable rights of the individual. As we have clearly seen, there is a direct correlation between a regime's insistence upon collectivist conformity and its willingness to enact the most heinous of political crimes. Flipping this scenario through deductive reasoning leads us to the conclusion that the enshrinement and legal protection of the individual is the only reliable bulwark against democidal regimes. Because if this weren't the case, they wouldn't care about you speaking your mind, expressing your thoughts, and living your life the way you choose. The Nazis, the Communists, the Populists, the Globalists, and rising quickly these days, the Radical Progressives, all insist that you must follow their understanding of the world, their methods for the greater good, and install them as the shepherds towards a glorious, and perfectly equal society. Don't ever let them. There is no possible scenario wherein an elitist cabal of philosopher kings can certainly map out a positive future for you and your loved ones. Recall that, according to their track record thus far, their alleged good intentions have paved the road to hell with 174 million unwilling participants. So far. And in closing, I will leave you with a quote by Soviet dissident and former Czech president Václav Havel, a man who spent the near entirety of his life under the democidal totalitarian regime of the Soviet Russians. He reminds us that, quote, We had all become used to the totalitarian system and accepted it as an unchangeable fact and thus helped to perpetuate it. In other words, we are all, though naturally to different extents, responsible for the operation of the totalitarian machinery. None of us is just its victim. We are also its co-creators." End quote.
Darkcast Network, indie pods with a dark side. I'm Jackie Moranti, and I produce a podcast called Cause of Death, 100 Seconds to Midnight. Have you ever read or watched any post-apocalyptic fiction? Were you one of the first people to see The Road or I Am Legend when they came out? Do you wonder if those things could really happen? Could the world as we know it be toppled by a disease, a global crisis, or a natural disaster? I assure you that it could. My show talks about the precursors to apocalyptic events. I like to call it pre-apocalyptic nonfiction. I talk about history and how we never learned from it. The present and how we tend to ignore every warning sign. And the future and what it will mean if we don't take care of our resources. The hands of the doomsday clock have been set at 100 seconds to midnight for three years now. Can we make the hands turn back? Cause of Death, 100 Seconds to Midnight can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, I'm Kona Gallagher. And I'm Ethan Flick. We're the husband and wife team behind the true crime podcast, And Then They Were Gone. We're a weekly show that covers unsolved missing persons cases. These are cases that you, the listener, can have an impact on. That's right. Each week, we bring you a new case of someone who has gone missing and needs their story told. Some of the people you may have heard of, like Kristen Smart or Braceless Pisa. But we also bring you missing people of color and other cases that haven't gotten the mainstream attention that they deserve. We cover the missing person's life and delve into the investigation and media coverage. One thing that we've learned in the nearly two years of doing this podcast is that a lot of these cases could be solved if pressure was put on the investigative agencies to do more. Our hope is that by getting these stories out there, you'll help us put that pressure on them. So come along with us as we tell these stories, and maybe you hold the key to bringing someone home. And Then They Were Gone is a proud member of the Darkcast Network and Spreaker Prime. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, or your favorite podcast app. Hey, thanks, Greg, for this opportunity to promote my show on the Smoke-Filled Rooms podcast. Hello, my name is Jack, and I am the host of the Secret Police podcast. Do you have a problem with authority? Because I do. And I'm on a mission to help us all build a healthy skepticism towards those in power. I do this by exploring how dictators enforce their rule. On Secret Police, we explore the history and methods of the world's most brutal secret police forces. Currently, we are chronicling Russia's long relationship with secret police forces from Ivan the Terrible's Oprichniki, the Soviet secret police, and up to the modern-day FSB, as well as all the turbulence inherent in Russia's history. If you're into history, dark humor, and hearing about the worst of what the human race has to offer, this is the show for you. We've got a lot planned for this podcast. After we leave Russia, we'll be visiting all kinds of nice men. The Haitian Tantan Makut, the Iranian Savak, Mussolini's Ovra, even fictional political police like the Thought Police from Orwell's 1984, and so much more. Humanity's propensity towards violence and authoritarianism certainly provides a lot of content for us to explore. Listen to episodes of Secret Police on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, pretty much anywhere you find podcasts. 
Follow Secret Police on Twitter at hush underscore popo and Instagram at Secret Police Podcast. Leave the show a rating, review, like, and subscribe. Agents dismissed. I'm Dawn. And I'm Cole. And Scottish Murders is a true crime podcast dedicated to people from or living in Scotland. Just like anywhere else in the world, these murders can be truly horrific and shocking. And we want to shine more light upon them. Join us every two weeks on Scottish Murders, where we'll bring you cases both solved and unsolved, giving you an insight into the other side of Bonnie Scotland. Find us wherever you stream your podcasts, as well as on social media. Join us there. Bye. Witchcraft. The occult. Extremist beliefs. Murder. Tune in to Rogue Darkness each Friday and join host Raven as I uncover horrific crimes committed under the misconceptions and misunderstandings of witchcraft and other belief systems. I'll cover a wide range of crimes involving ritualistic killings and extremist beliefs to cult persuasion and supposed possession. Anything and everything that borders the line of horrifying. There's always three sides to a story. Side A, side B, and then the truth. Let's uncover the truth together and explore the darkness of mankind, one crime at a time. Available wherever you get your podcast fix, simply by searching Rogue Darkness. Rogue Darkness.